Welcome to After the Shofar, a Jewish Climate Network podcast, bringing you lactose-free morsels of insight for a meaningful Jewish year ahead. With fresh Jewish Australian voices, we'll be diving into big questions inspired by this time in the Jewish calendar. How might the Jewish practice of teshuva, repentance, make us better Jews, better people and better climate leaders? And when all is said and done, after the shofar blows for the final time, what do we each want to stand for and be proud of when the new year rolls around? Thank you to the Erdi Foundation for supporting these important conversations and for your commitment to Jewish leadership on climate issues. We couldn't have done this without you. And now let's dive in. Our guest this week is Yael Stone. She's one of Australia's most beloved actors. Best known for her long-running role as Lorna Morello in Orange is the New Black, she's recently turned her considerable talents to climate solutions. Specifically, she speaks about her inspiring work at High Neighbour, a wonderful project that you can check out in our show notes. Yael also shares a tender moment with her dad during this interview, reflecting on her childhood and her decision not to go through with the bat mitzvah. We had a wonderful time making this episode. We hope you enjoy. Well, it's really good to have you here, Yael. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, Joel. And and I cheer because it is so nice to hear my name pronounced so beautifully. It's such a brilliant way to start a Monday. Thank you. Well, it's really good to have you here. So uh, this podcast, After the Shofar, is uh, produced by the Jewish Climate Network. And I didn't mention at the beginning, but I'm Joel Lazar. I'm the CEO of the Jewish Climate Network. And our aim with this podcast and the guests that we're having on Uh, is to explore their journey through Judaism, their experience with this time of the Jewish calendar, Elul, the month of Elul, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and all of the big themes around that time of year, repentance and prayer and charity, um, and then, of course, climate and how that all links to where we are now uh, in the world of climate understanding, climate action, um, so we'll just sort of, we'll just meander, we'll dance, we'll see where it goes and I'm sure it'll be wonderful. I'm excited. I, I'm also a little nervous, <laughs> mainly probably because of the, the Jewish element of it is the most confronting for me. I'm, I'm very happy to talk about climate all day long, but yeah, there's, it's an interesting in, intersection because yeah, I'm quite, I have not made I have not made peace with my with my journey as a Jewish woman, and um, yeah, it's always been quite quite fraught for me. So yeah, there's there's definitely some nerves, but seeing your friendly face is helping. Good, good. Well, yeah, let's let's dig into that. I don't think I know one Jew who doesn't have a fraught journey with their Jewishness. <laughs> so I think you're in good company, actually. <laughs> So I think that's the perfect place to kick off. As I mentioned just before we started this episode, I was doing a little bit of digging on your on your background and your history, and I found a, a wonderful story from the Saturday paper a number of years ago where you described, uh, I think, the weeks leading up to your bat mitzvah, where you had prepared and you were ready to go. I think maybe you had oh prepared gosh. your parasha. You know everything, Joel. And at the last second, you pulled out. Mm-hmm. Can you mm-hmm. tell us a bit about that? What was What was going on there? Oh, gosh. Okay. I couldn't feel God. And I felt very guilty about it. I, 
I guess I've always been reasonably kind of analytical, self-analytical, um, and that may have connections to why I became an actor. And But I was reading these words and looking at these English translations and, and often would have this experience when we would go to temple where I would so love the feel of the Hebrew and, and would so enjoy the music and the ceremony. But then as I got older and I was able to read the, the English translation, I thought that's not a relationship that I know or feel, particularly this very male figure of God as a young woman, um, this very dominant almighty figure was intimidating and confusing for me. The, the kind of intense sense of power, I couldn't marry that with, with love and an internal relationship with God. And I felt really guilty about it. Um, I felt, I felt like I'd let my dad down and, and, and that I wasn't kind of following through. I'm the youngest of three children and everyone else had gone through and had really wonderful experiences and beautiful celebrations. And I felt like a liar. Yeah. So he and I had a few conversations about it and, you know, he was really not very happy about it but he had always engaged me with a kind of level playing field, less of an authoritarian figure, but we we had always talked things out and had, you know, discussions rather than him dictating to me. So I think he probably would have liked to have said, okay, enough now, you're just going to do this. But that was not the way we related um, and that was not the way he developed my conversational mind and ultimately yeah I decided not to do it and do I have regrets about that yeah I do I do I also understand that young person's perspective and and I appreciate and respect it but yeah there's some regrets yeah no I hear that um I guess it's that paradoxical aspect of Jewish tradition which is prides itself on asking questions we have such a strong tradition of debating God and it's not something that we even hide, you know, Abraham debated God, Moses debated God, Job debated God. And it's kind of part of our tradition, but the the flip side is what if you don't like the other end of that debate? You know, what if you don't like the answers that come back at you? And this is actually something that came up as a theme. One of our, one of our other podcasts with one of our other guests that um, it's just an inherent interesting paradox in Judaism to, to both be part of the religion and part of the people, but also to struggle with that people at the same time. Yeah. I w- and, and in some ways that has helped me with this journey of identity where I am now, you know, much more comfortable with being able to say, yeah, look, I'm definitively a Jewish person and I am definitively proud of my family. Uh, and yet there are questions and within the context of my Judaism lie the questions uh, as I kind of slowly am moving through and, as I said, still deeply, deeply conflicted and unsure, I've come to understand that my conflict and my desire and almost obsessive nature of questioning things is deeply Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So where, where are you at now? Do you have a, a sense of where 
or how you want to engage with the tradition going forward? That's really interesting again, Joel. We're just going right to the heart of everything. <laughs> well, it's confronting to have, I'm, I'm eight months pregnant with our second child. Um, Mazel tov. Thank you so much. And it's in it, it's the, that feeling of precipice again when you look at your identity and at the context of the world, um, which, again, of course, is very important in terms of climate change. And, you know, my partner is a Bundjalung man. He's proud of his heritage. I'm proud to, to have Aboriginal children. There is a, a real sense of a melting pot there. There's also a, a lot of trauma in both of those stories. How best to honour the traditions of both sides of the family. It's complicated and complex. And to add to that, we live in a place where it, there's, from what I can see, no Jewish community. Where are you living right now? We live in Bulai on the south coast. I, my sister is here. So, you know, that's really fantastic. And mum and dad are, you know, only an hour and a half away, but there is, it's hard to know how to engage. We we spent a little time in Adelaide. I was shooting a vampire show in Adelaide for five months and it was, it was weird. I got there. One of the first things I did was find a temple, which is really, yeah. really unlike me. But I thought, oh, I'm in a city. I can... This is something that's actually available to me. And I went by myself and I felt like I was sitting outside again, like I kind of always feel, and yet at home as well. So that's really interesting. And I had a funny journey. Like I, I lived in, in New York for seven years and one day I woke up and I realised, oh, all my friends are Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't realise them. And we and it actually reinvigorated my Judaism because of kind invitations to do things that just happened to sort of slowly draw me back in. And there was a shared kind of childhood understanding. Yeah. But that was very, very unexpected. And I, I think living in New York allowed me to come to that more complex understanding of my Judaism, that it was okay to say, yes, I am Jewish and I have questions about my Judaism and about religion at, at large and that that's okay and that there's a complexity, that there's value in complexity in that. So, yeah, it's it's been a little isolating coming back to Australia and feeling unsure where to, um, of course, my dad is calling. Dad. Dad, I'm doing a podcast. Stop tell. it. He can tell that I'm... He would love to hear all of this. Yeah, put um, him on. I wouldn't mind having him on. <laughs> Dad. Just ringing to say hello, hello. Hello, hello. Um, look, I'm very good. I'm just, look, I'm just in the middle of a podcast. I'm with Joel, who uh, is the, do, are you the CEO of the Jewish Climate? Yes, the CEO of the Jewish Climate Network. And he and I are talking and he was asking me, he was asking me about my mitzvah story and... Uh, and I was, story, yeah, yeah, that, that I was studying with Ofra and then I decided that I wouldn't go ahead with it. I thought, well, you're here and maybe you could, I was saying that you and I had had discussions about it and, and that it was kind of painful and a little difficult. Do you have any memories of that time? 
Well, not that it was painful and difficult. I just remember that you were starting with Ofra and uh, you made a decision that you didn't want to do the bar mitzvah, that's all. Okay. But it was, it, was it upsetting for you, that decision? Oh, no, no. I mean, <laughs> Yali, you're, you're, you push the limits, so I'm, I'm happy to, and you're not stupid, so I'm happy to trust your judgment on things. And the fact is that you're rediscovering stuff or you're questioning stuff when you, now that you've got, had, had time to think about it. Yeah. You're questioning stuff. So, I mean, you're, you're smarter than a lot of people that just accept it and move on. But it's sometimes it's a lot more difficult to do to to actually question it than than just to do it and move on. Yeah, yeah. So and you and and you also when you do that, you make your family go on that journey too, if they're willing. And it can also be you know more painful for them too. Well, so that's, yeah. that's okay. But our family's an unusual family anyway. Yes. Judy went and got converted. I mean, it's a yeah. whole lot of stuff. That not not many people. They do. They don't question. They just do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I really appreciate that. That's very kind of you to add that. All right. Love you. Love you. (laughs) That's a good answer. (laughs) (laughs) It's nice to know he wasn't disappointed. He was proud of your thinking, young thinking mind. Yeah, yeah. And and I think he definitely. That's actually how he raised me. Absolutely. We would, um, he would pick me up from school because I was the youngest. He kind of, the other kids had left and he felt, oh, I'll, I'll get her from school because she's got no company coming home on the bus. But actually what it meant was we just sat together um, and we would, you know, talk. We'd go to, we'd go to a cafe and I'd, I'd get an apple and cinnamon muffin and, and we'd just talk. And often it was around his memories about living on the kibbutz and and a kind of idealised lifestyle um, of cooperation and shared purpose. And those conversations meant a lot to me and went, went in deeply. And I would question him all the time. Um, and we still have really fiery discussions and they're good you know they're really good they're really valuable they definitely shaped me but it doesn't I don't make it easy for him <laughs> yeah you're a tough interlocutor <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> well, I love it well it's it's a nice segue to I guess just the positive sides of family Jewish family are, are there any aspects of Jewish tradition or Jewish peoplehood um, that you think are useful for what we're facing now with climate tools or, or ways of thinking or being that can guide us in this sort of great challenge? Well, I guess I would be I would be hesitant to group a, 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 a you know to task a, a group of people with you know finding a solution. I think one of the biggest um, takeaways that I have on this journey, which is a journey and there has been lots of lots of lessons and changes in direction, is that we all have a role to play. And in a way that's what's so exciting about the challenge is that there really is a space for everybody because it's so cross-systematic. It's so up and down, left and right. It's everywhere. It concerns us all. 
such that we can all feel really justified in our involvement because there are some spaces that are not for me and I've learned that over time. There are some spaces where just my allyship and support and amplification is really important but it's not my space. Climate change has a wonderful opportunity in that it is open to all of us because the impacts are so universal, so intersectional that the work we do in our own spaces will have impact. And if we all do work in our own spaces, there is likely to be a positive outcome. Mm. So that's that's an exciting kind of universality for me with the challenge. Yeah, so while I'm hearing you say while the Jewish community sh- it shouldn't have the entire challenge on its shoulders or no individual community should no. or individual yeah. religion or culture or people, we belong in the solution and there's something unique that we can offer. So I don't know if a lot of listeners know, but you established your own climate change-focused organisation recently called High Neighbour. Yeah. And it's got a strong kind of community vibe to it, I guess. Do you want to describe a bit of what that is and what it's what it's trying to do? Yeah, absolutely. So it's um, it's really born out of the region that, that we live in here. So we live in Bulai, which is part of the larger Illawarra, Dural country area. And it's a very unique place because... It's incredibly beautiful environmentally, geographically, really unique. And it is also the home of a proud coal mining and steelmaking tradition. And in that tradition, there's also really strong industrial action, um, a very progressive, forward-thinking, protest-oriented group of people. Um, And there's been a big shift of late with the climate movement that has pitted groups who want action on climate change against workers who work in these fossil fuel intensive areas. And I started to see that on the ground. And I was actually part of that aggressive force for a time because I thought that was, that was my role to protest, to, to, to separate the argument. Um, And I learn, as I said, it's been a messy journey, that that wasn't going to work. If everyone wasn't included on that journey, that positive action, well, it's not a success. If If you're creating wedges and telling groups of people that they are bad simply because of the role they take in their work, the role that they may have inherited from generations and generations of family, a role they've worked hard for that is not easy, that is not an easy job um, or an easy one job, then you're dividing the spoils of the solution. Mm. And there is no solution that doesn't include everybody. Mm. It's not a success, right? So... That's a fairly esoteric way of describing what we do. <laughs> but that's, the, that's at the heart of it, that everybody is included in this really bountiful future that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, so High Neighbour's role is basically to support workers, local workers, to retrain in 
low carbon technology training so that they have access to jobs in hydrogen, in wind, in retrofitting homes and making sure that those jobs stay local and that we have a really rich social life as well in this transition, in this transformation that doesn't leave some folks behind, that doesn't shame some folks because of the role that they've played in powering our nation, that says thank you, that says we respect our past and we are ready to move forward with our future with everybody. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And that's a message it seems that is so applicable to pretty much everyone who just didn't know or is not doing anything on purpose with no pernicious intent. They might be part of a a company, an organization, and maybe they'd heard of the impacts of climate or what's driving climate change and but they really weren't quite sure. And like you say, they were just, they got that job. Maybe they inherited the job. They were doing their best. They're trying to make money for their family. And if we, if we include everyone in those solutions from across every sector, then it'll feel a lot more like a a joint kind of a joint mission that we're all on together, perhaps. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's interesting. um, My partner and I, we were in the States as I said, I lived in New York for seven years. We were there for the for the Trump Clinton election. Mm. And there was a grand failing and ignorance around the group of people that Trump came to represent. Decent, you know, some very decent people who felt forgotten, who felt shamed, who felt that they no longer fit or were welcome into a kind of surging paradigm of thinking and that sends you underground when you're meant to be ashamed of who you are or the jobs that you've had or the jobs that you no longer have or the fact that you are structurally unemployed, you know. Shame shame has some terribly toxic ongoing impacts and when we divide our communities and we send some people under because we shame them, we lose all the incredible potential there and we and we plant toxic seeds. Mm. And it sounds like it's also very disempowering. I mean, some of these people might have had potential to do big things for climate solutions and then they feel terrible about it. So why, why should they even start? You know, why should they even yeah, try? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one, one of our wonderful volunteers I hope it's okay to say his name. I'm sure he'll be proud. Greg Knight. (laughs) Greg worked as a metallurgical engineer for Blue Scope making steel for 39 years and then has committed his retirement to CO2 reduction. Mm. That's a powerful stance. Incredible. Yeah. And you can flip. You can just make make that flip and there's no shame in that. No, absolutely not. Absolutely no shame in feeding your family and working hard and rising to the challenge and then you and then new information comes in and you move and you change with it you know greg's contributions are invaluable to me yeah yeah i love that story i mean it also reminds of um well it really takes us to a topic a little bit of a sidestep here around big decisions for climate 
like in our own lives. So the, one of the most famous stories circulating on the internet about your climate action is that you gave up your green card in America, which really gave you the right to live and work there as, a, as an actor. Yeah. And you gave up that green card because you felt that it was environmentally unjust or environmentally unethical to be traveling between Australia and America. So I'd love for you to share a bit with our audience a bit behind that decision, what, what was that like for you? How do you feel about that now? But also just maybe to reflect a bit on that idea of th- there's a decision like that in all of us. There's a green card decision somewhere deep down, right, for each of us, and it's different depending on our own lives. What will it take or what would you invite people to sort of ha- dig down into to find that green card decision for them? whoever they are, if they're business leaders or teachers or philanthropists or youth leaders, you know. So it's kind of a two-pronged one. Well, it's. I guess we're also framing it in this discussion about trying to make good and trying and, and repentance and um, and in, in this notion of repentance, of course, is sort of inbuilt self-forgiveness as well because if you're saying, look, I acknowledge something that's happened there is also an implication of a pathway forward. That's a framing, I guess, to answer that question. At the time, I was really searching for some answers, feeling deeply anxious and depressed about the the state we found ourselves in. As I said, we're on the south coast. The land, you know, from 70 k's south was decimated. The animals were decimated people's lives are at stake and it felt completely wildly out of control. It felt that there was no guiding hand, that there was no strong leadership. Just to clarify, you're, are, you, are you referring to the 2019 to 2020 bushfires? Yes, sorry. I'm so, yeah. there's no present in my mind. I didn't even, I didn't even name it. But, yeah, so it was 20, 2019 summers. And it just grew and grew and got closer and closer and everyone was literally choking on the truth. And I, I was reaching for someone to take responsibility and then I thought, oh, I'm not taking responsibility. Where's my, where's my internal leadership on this? And, you know, we were, we were all set to fly back and back to the States Um with our daughter and, you know, have this life where we kind of move between both places and incredibly sort of indulgent life, really. Not that we're terribly fancy people, but but the, the mere fact of those, of the carbon tonnage of moving us back and forth ha- had a weight, felt, felt weighty. It also felt weighty to know that we are the country who face some of the most immediate impacts of climate change and who also hold responsibility for some of the highest usage and export of carbon in the world. And if I feel passionately about change, shouldn't I be in that country, the place where I was born, trying to work towards some kind of solution? However naive and skillless and out of my depth shouldn't I try if I feel so deeply passionately that something is wrong wouldn't it serve me to work on a solution 
And when I made the statement, I probably did it to throw the gauntlet and then see so that I could level up to that promise. Yeah, I guess when you do something publicly, you're kind of throwing yourself in it. And I was making myself accountable. (laughs) Yeah. And you were using a platform as well. I mean, you knew that you had you know, followers and people knew of you and that's a very powerful thing to use. It's a risky thing to use because it's your public name. It's like your brand, your image, all that stuff, but it's equally powerful. Well, again, it's a very, very self-righteous kind of position to take. But, yeah, I guess the only thing I had of any value was was a voice and, you know, that that voice comes from a show called Orange is the New Black, which was essentially a conversation about social justice in the context of of criminal justice reform. And so the logic goes on that I guess the folks that I may or, or I was able to talk to at that time might hear that there was a kind of social justice responsibility, however you want to kind of frame it, that maybe they would hear that and maybe we could move people. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a very limited thing that I have. I don't have any bureaucratic levers. I, I'm not terribly powerful in terms of business or in terms of my, you know, shareholding or anything like that. But what I did have in that moment was an ability to talk to people directly. And yeah, and it, it was, it was quite, it's quite a crazy thing to, you know, think back on pressing send. On that. <laughs> yeah. There's no but, going back. One thing I would reframe the decision that because I have learned so much now and there's still so much to learn, I would reframe it now rather than this kind of sacrifice mindset. I'm going to sacrifice this. Um, I would reframe it as a, as a kind of abundance opportunity mm. and say that the decision gave me so much and has given me so much and will continue to give me a lot with uh, taking your green card moments to let's say listeners who come from all aspects of life who business education academia arts knowledge sometimes doesn't translate to action in so many ways something had to have happened in you and i'm wondering how might you invite like how might you encourage those who are listening to find that that i don't know that emotional place or that psychological place where they take everything they know about climate change, of which they probably know a great deal already, yeah. uh, how to translate that into that big next thing for them, whether that's in the field of capital or political engagement or using their influence or their leadership. How do you jump over that threshold to be like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do something that really matters here. There's two opportunities, healing and abundance the anxiety that you most likely feel at about 2.30 at night when you wake up and you think, where are we going with all of this? That is best addressed and healed in the sunlight, in action, in your community, with other people, saying the words out loud. The fears that you have are not crazy. You don't need to be embarrassed for considering wider existential realities and the best antidote for that nighttime anxiety is actually bringing it into the sun. So that's, that's the first opportunity, the opportunity for healing and connection. 
And the second idea of abundance is that for a long time the debate and because of the nature of the debate was framed around what we have to lose. And now we are talking about what we have to gain. There is all kinds of abundance available in this next journey. And if for for a person who um, st- financial stability and a, a secure market, that's an important foundation, well, there's financial abundance there. There's incredible wealth of, of knowledge uh, and possibility in actually addressing the deep disrupt in, the, in a market that doesn't address climate change. There is a, emotional abundance in, have, in being able to have children and look at the children and say, there is a future there for you that is safe and healthy. It includes fresh air and fresh water and the animals that, that your parents grew up with. That is an emotional abundance that we don't get in any other way. And then there's a spiritual abundance when we engage with the living world, with the earth. And to be disconnected from, from her realities is, I would suggest, missing out on something because there's, there's great wisdom in, in our natural environment. And if we disconnect from that, we're missing out on an incredible teacher, on the, probably the greatest mentor that we have, um, this miracle of the place that we, that we live earth. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I, that abundance is unquantifiable. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So t- t- take the step. <laughs> yeah. Take the step towards abundance. Um, it's not all, it's not all pain, which is how it was often described. It's actually a lot of gain. Yeah. And, and that healing of actually working towards something more positive than, than just fretting about doom and gloom. All right, I thought we'd maybe close off with a um, final question. So I mentioned at the beginning, the name of the uh, podcast is After the Shofar. So that that phrase refers to that final moment for those who, you know, go to Shul on Yom Kippur. It's people have been fasting for 25, 24 hours and they're often tired and exhausted, often a bit frustrated, but they've kind of spent everything. Like, you know, they've put everything on the table. You know, they might have actually dug quite deep into themselves. They've reflected on who they were in the last year and maybe they wish they were a bit different. Oh, I did that thing. I I said that thing to my parents or I, I stuffed up that relationship. But the beautiful point about that after the shofar moment is that you start with a really clean slate. And I remember as a kid <laughs> with this clean slate that I knew that when the shofar ended, I was on a clean slate. And if I could just, if I just said nothing and did nothing for 12 months, I could be pure for like 12 months, you know, because you get to reset. Obviously that was impossible. Within an hour, I would had a fight with my brother and it was all over. But for most people after the shofar blows, there's that moment of opportunity of I could be somebody different now in the year ahead. So with that idea, I was wondering if you could reflect on what do you hope for people when they get to that moment after the shofar, this Yom Kippur? What do you hope has landed for them, particularly in the area of climate, you know, something that if they want to be different this year or they want to take some sort of different action or have a different disposition after the shofar blows, like maybe it's a blessing, maybe it's a hope, maybe it's an invitation, you know? In the space of climate, 
because obviously there's so many things to hope for in our lives um, and, and most of those things, if born of love and optimism, are going to go in the right direction. So that's like the first kind of broad sweeping statement. For so long I wanted to be part of positive change in all kinds of different areas and I wanted to very simply volunteer I didn't have a very clear role modeling for that. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't feel that I had a place and that I had any skills. And I think I would just invite everybody to do away with that kind of time-wasting notion that you're not useful to find a place. And there's so many people out there doing beautiful things that there's a very good chance someone is aligning with your with your kind of thinking and they need you whether you want to value judge yourself or not they need your help because they're pushing a barrow and it's it's a it's hard work and if you can come in with whatever skill sets that you might offer that will be deeply appreciated for the time that you can offer that I feel that I probably wasted a lot of time judging myself as unuseful or too awkward or, you know, I don't know the way to do this. And my volunteering journey started by writing, by literally writing the words prison plus yoga into a search and finding a website and writing to you know, I thought, oh, they'll never write back. The founder of this organization, of course, wrote, wrote back because everything is started by, you know, just a handful of people that are waiting for other people to join. And that was amazingly um, liberating. I thought, oh, I'm helpful. I can be helpful. So really what I'm saying is go to the High Neighbor website and write to me <laughs> because I will write back to you directly. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Just have it, just, just write it, take that first action action. The very first action is often all you need to continue to a second action and a third and a fourth and a fifth. Yes. And it always seems it's so, it's this strange rule that it always seems the hardest one, you know, you're like thinking, Oh, I think I want to study. I think I want to do this. I'm interested in this. And you'll take 10 years to, <laughs> to be like, how do I? <laughs> Google has all the answers you need. <laughs> No, we're not advertising Google, no. <laughs> what an amazing symbolic idea that we can we can start again and be part of the things that inspire us and and really step into that opportunity for healing and for abundance. It's so cool. I love that. That's awesome. So with this final um, this final moment, we ask the guests of our show to, if they have a shofar lying around, to blow the shofar. You unfortunately, I think, couldn't find a shofar, which makes complete sense because they're actually very hard to come by. <laughs> um, but do, do you have a flute lying around or is that also too hard to find? Because <laughs> we'll, take, we'll take any musical instruments available. <laughs> I suddenly feel really embarrassed. <laughs> okay, but we talked about not engaging with shame so mm, yeah. yeah abundance maybe it's maybe it won't be 10 seconds and just let's all remember that I stopped playing the flute when I was 10 so let's not be mean okay it's been a number of decades since you tried so all respect yeah. to you 
She still got it. that last note. <laughs> courage. That's all we're asking for. A bit of courage. I love it. Thank you, Yael. Uh, this has been uh, a really wonderful conversation. I feel like we touched on a lot of beautiful points, personal points and um, really powerful ones that I hope will encourage listeners this year to think about how the next year can be an even better one than the last. So thank you so much. Oh, an absolute pleasure. It's really, really lovely to talk to you and I'm so grateful for your work and I, I do think there's so much we can do together all of us in our in our coming in from our own spokes and and offering what we what we have and I'm very grateful to you and your team for committing to this wicked problem slash solution slash opportunity and if I can play the flute on your podcast well, mm-hmm. there are some brave things people can do. <laughs> Anything's possible. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to JCN's Elul Climate Podcast after the Shofar. We'll be back with another episode next week. If you want to learn more about what was discussed in the podcast, check out our show notes. Until then, follow us on our social media at Jewish Climate Network to see what else we're up to. We hope your week is filled with teshuvah, tefillah, tzedakah, and thinking about how we will make the coming year count for our climate. Shana tovah!